American Toffee Podcast, your source for stateside views on Everton Football Club, hosted by Alex Johnson and James Boyman. Greetings, everybody. Welcome back to the American Toffee Podcast. James here, per usual, joined by Ryan. No Alex today, unfortunately, but we got Ryan here. You got the two jabronis in the house. Ryan, how are we doing? Not too bad. Getting a getting a little anxious for a nice little matchup uh, Saturday morning, but there have been some other things going down that we think we need to cover here in the American Toffee Podcast. Indeed, there have been. So last time we were with you guys, we gave you a transfer window wrap. Today, we are going to do a international roundup from all of the Blues out on duty. We are then going to discuss in decent length and detail the scandalous, sensational proposal by Manchester United and Liverpool, which has been dubbed Project Big Picture. We're going to take you through some of the big talking points around it, give our thoughts on it, etc., etc. We will then talk about a couple rumors still lingering around as the domestic window remains open. A couple players who may be in, may be out. We'll talk about that briefly, and then we will end. We'll take a quick break and wrap things up with, of course, the most important segment of the day, which is the Merseyside Derby preview. It is less than 48 hours away. Very exciting times. Uh, But Ryan, before we get to all that, let's start with the international roundup. So we're just going to run through these pretty quickly. First things first, our magic left back, Luca Dean, played 90 minutes in a friendly against Ukraine, which they won, I believe, seven to one. He then played the other day, 83 minutes versus Croatia in a Nations League match, picked up a fourth minute yellow card, had seven tackles and had a pretty nice assist. That was uh, he, lovely, yeah. lovely. One touch. For, I mean, we've seen that one before, though. Oh, of course. Lovely. Par for the course with Luca. We know what a great passer of the ball he is. Uh, interestingly enough, he did, of course, limp off, um, pointing at his knee, apparently, in the 83rd minute. Uh, and another interesting little tidbit was that former blue Nikola Vlasic scored against France in that match. Let it go. He's gone, man. <laughs> He's gone. Just gone. Uh, never. <laughs> he's still a talent, though. I can't believe he's still in rush. He really needs to get a move, but um, eh, good for him. Whatever. You know, I, I think I probably had more issue with his sister running her mouth than him. Oh, so. that was awful. <laughs> She's a good athlete, though. We'll give her yeah. some credit for that. But yeah. Oh, well, it happens. I think also we got to see uh, our newest acquisition, Robin Olsen. Still have yet to see him in anything resembling an Everton training kit, but we did see him start twice for Sweden. Two losses, of course. Uh, two one loss to Croatia. Somebody else scored in that one. Who was that? Vlasic, Vlasic again. Again. Yeah, there you go. All right. The, the hits keep coming for Nikola Vlasic. And uh, he also started in a loss to Portugal. Um, they got they got beat down pretty bad, 3-0. Um, I, I didn't watch a lot of it, so it's hard to say. I still am encouraged battles, and we'll see how he does. But um, And then, obviously, we've got um, the English team, which I did manage to catch a couple of those two games where we had Dom and Pick and uh, Michael Keane got in two against Wales. I thought it was a nice moment to see Dom score, even though it was a friendly his uh, his first in his first start England goal uh, versus Wales. James, I I thought that was a nice moment. Don't you agree? Yeah, and I did get a chance to catch that match as well. And it it was a well-taken goal. Very uh, typical Dominic Calvert-Lewin header. 
goal, uh, a nice finish, of course, in the friendly against Wales, where they looked pretty good. Michael Keane started that match as well, though Jordan Pickford did not. However, Dominic Calvert-Lewin then uh, proceeded to start against Belgium in a 2-1 loss there. Uh, Jordan Pickford started that match as well. Or sorry, 2-1 win for, for England. <clears throat> I misspoke. That was a massive win. because they didn't deserve to win at all. But no, that's okay. not at all. Yeah, but they'll take <laughs> they had a good it. second half. Run. They had a good second half. They, yeah. they did, actually. Yeah, the they first half was bad, but, but they did yeah. they did look much better in the second half, much more confident. And Jordan Pickford as well started uh, against Denmark. Dominic Calvert-Lewin came on as a sub in the 72nd minute of that match, and that was a 1-0 loss. Uh, I think all the goodwill that they garnered in the Belgium win was then squandered against Denmark, where they conceded like 60% possession, Harry Maguire with a disastrous red card. So uh, a, a tumultuous break for the three Lions, I would say. It worked out for us, though. I mean, I, I still cannot believe that they don't think Michael Keane is a better option, at least based on current form than some of the guys are playing back there. And I, I still don't understand the setup. Uh, there's just way too many talented players in England to play who they're playing and so defensively minded and just lacking athleticism. And it drives me bonkers. I mean, they, they really did have a nice response to Belgium in the second half, but they had no business being anywhere near them after that first half. But again, you know, uh, their loss is our benefit as an Everton as Evertonians and Michael Keane did not get hurt. Uh, and pick, you know, seems like he comes off the break, maybe with a little more confidence that can't hurt us. So, um, in addition, Gilfie, uh, Showed up. I think he captained the side, um, scored a first half brace versus Romania. Uh, looked good doing it, I might yeah, add. Barry. Yeah, he definitely did. I mean, both finishes were good. Played 90. They got spanked by Denmark. Um, but let me tell you what, man, Denmark's got some talent and they seem to be deploying it rather well. Um, those are big matches for Iceland, though, in the Nations League. But uh, again, Gilfie's healthy. He may figure out figure for us. And then, of course, I would be remiss to <laughs> not mention uh, my favorite number one in your heart. Alex Awobi did play uh, almost all of two matches, uh, friendly against Algeria and Tunisia. Didn't do a whole lot. Um, probably should have scored a goal, um, but did play in the middle. I think uh, I think the first match he played. 4-1-1, and he was kind of the central playmaker. And um, in the draw against Tunisia, it looked like they played a lot of 4-4-2. Either way, he was down the middle both times, which is typically how he plays for country. Um, a lot of people say he's better in the middle, but realistically, um, you know, I think he's just as confident on the left side for us. But anyway, and then, of course, we have the Colombians. The big Colombian boys. So we had, of course, Yeri Mina and Hamas Rodriguez on duty with Colombia in their World Cup qualifiers. Yuri Mina played 90 minutes in a 3-0 win versus Ecuador. Hamas played 74 minutes in that game before being uh, subbed off. Uh, Yuri Mina was then held out of their second qualifier against Chile because of supposed discomfort in his thigh. Uh, I've heard rumors that the instructions from Everton to the Colombian Federation were, be gentle with our big center back. It seems like they didn't want to risk it. Obviously, a huge match coming up and were threadbare at center back, so... Seems like they followed instructions, which was good, but the Colombian national team's not the same without Yeri uh, shoring up their back line. And then James, of course, in the draw to Chile, played a full 90. And no injuries. Yeah, I, that's what's, you know, James not getting hurt was is interesting, too. Uh, James sometimes is not afraid to put a boot in someone, too, and he definitely <laughs> definitely wasn't. <laughs> There's that lovely still photo of him putting studs right into, I think, Alexi Sanchez. Uh, with, like, a gleeful look on his face, too. You gotta love uh, it. 
I mean, Chile's got some guys. I mean, they're not Uruguay, but they still have some guys that will kick you as well, too. And South America matches, they it's really do. disappointing. Oh, I mean, it, was, it stinks, though. We can't watch them from here, you yeah. know, unless you're doing pay-per-view, which I actually thought about doing, which is a shame. Uh, you can see the Copa Libertadores. You can normally see the qualifiers, but this time you couldn't. They're really intense matches and fun to watch. Copa America in particular is just awesome. And our other favorite Brazilian, uh, Richarlison. Subbed on in the 71st in a uh, solid beating against Bolivia, and he uh, played and scored in a 4-2 win versus Peru. Peru's a pretty underrated team, actually. I don't know if you saw the first goal from Peru was an absolute worldly. It was an interesting match, it looked like, by the highlights. But again, other than being elbowed in the absolute mouth and drawing a red card, if you call that drawing, like being a punching <laughs> bag, um, he appeared to, to come out of that unscathed as well. And I think we know how important he's going to be for us uh, this weekend. Yeah, exactly. And it was important, obviously, him having exited our most recent rep match with an ankle issue. It seems like it yeah. really wasn't that much of a problem and he was able to get through it fine. So all encouraging. The only two kind of potential problems there would be, of course, Yeri Mina and Luka Dean, as we've already mentioned. But that's a wrap for the international break. We did have a couple other players, Tom Davies, uh, I believe Ben Godfrey also played for the England U21s, but we didn't want to make this segment go on <laughs> too, too long. So let's uh, let's move things along here and talk about Project Big Picture, Ryan. So this was yeah. supposedly presented, leaked, whatever you want to say, by Manchester United and Liverpool as a proposal to fundamentally change some of the major aspects of the English Football League, of the English Football Pyramid, of the Premier League itself uh, as they exist today. And so there's some big components to it, and it it is quite comprehensive in a lot of ways. So we broke it down into four sections. And the first section is essentially what amounts to a COVID bailout for the rest of the the English football league. Oh, yeah. It's um, completely altruistic. I mean, they're, oh, yeah. they're trying to do it for the good of the game. Um, they want to help out all the other small clubs out there because that is the ethos of <laughs> Liverpool and Manchester United. Am I wrong? And what I will say, and yes, the nicest people around <laughs> owned like by it. top philanthropists and and kind that we know uh, well here in america of course that's, citizens, that's yes I, let, hey by the way can we just say cut us a break here for the yeah. people that are watching overseas I, I didn't buy those clubs it wasn't me james it was like you know what i mean like it, just because exactly. there's a, i mean a couple guys bought those clubs man uh, it's not us we didn't do it you know but anyway i just feel like sometimes it's like darn greedy americans and yeah there are some of those but you know, it's not all like that, but, but anyway, I mean, some of this is well-intended, I think, or it's maybe an excuse to, you know, they had to make it look well-intended to kind of take over, but look, I mean, other than the solidarity payments that they made in April of, you know, 125 million, which covers 68 teams, I mean, it's a 250 million pound bailout to the EFL, right? I mean, it's supposed to cover the lost revenues from COVID a lot of money going to the FA. What what I think you had the breakdown there is some of it's grassroots, like ten million, and yeah. then obviously ten million for the women's league, and oh yeah, like twenty five million for the national league too. A lot of people don't necessarily know the pyramid, but in addition to the top four leagues, you kind of have the Vanarama National League, and you have a South and North as well too. But um, yeah, they were part of this package as well. I think the structure is pretty interesting, though. I would say that's the first of the dramatic changes. Would you not agree? Yes, I, I totally agree, and and just off the back of the bailout stuff. What I will say is that there are many aspects of this plan that I think uh, aren't necessarily bad when taken at face value. However, we'll get to it at the end, but the the core real, I think, 
the crux or the main thing that Liverpool and Manchester United want is what makes this whole thing turn a little bit sour. But before we get to that, let's talk about the structure. So the proposal is to change the Premier League from a 20-team league to an 18-team league, thereby changing the next uh, both the championship in leagues one and two into 24-team leagues, uh, which would, as an overall composition of the English Football League, reduce the overall teams from 38 to 34. So four teams would then dip down into the National League. The way that would work, uh, as far as promotion relegation, which is another radical change, is that two teams would automatically be promoted and relegated from the Premier League Championship. Uh, and I believe that goes down to Leagues 1 and 2 as well. What would then happen is that the 16th team in the Premier League, or whatever league, would enter into a playoff with the the teams placed third, fourth, and fifth from the division below, um, which I think is really interesting. And it would certainly be a novel thing to watch where you have this Premier League team fighting for their life against, who, who presumably have had a relatively poor season against teams that are flying near the top of the championship. It's an interesting dynamic. But ultimately, I think the goal as it benefits the, the stakeholders in this project would be to reduce the number of overall fixtures in the league season. Yeah. And and look, other leagues do the whole, you know, one of the lower top teams faces off against, you know, the second division. And we saw it in the Bundesliga in Germany this past year, too. There's some drama to it. I mean, it's it's interesting. Uh, I don't understand what the dropping to 18 teams really accomplishes, though, frankly. But anyway, uh, I mean, as part of the structure, though, the biggest thing that I took from it that I hate. Abolishing the League Cup and the Community Shield, I you know, it's funny. Yeah. It's ironic for an American here speaking about tradition of an English game, yeah. but I don't get it. You know, it infuriates me too. It's just, it's like the big six bias that always diminishes the FA Cup in the same way. You know what? Other teams other than the big six love that. It's irritating that they would diminish it. And frankly, if the big six teams don't care about it, fine. That's their choice. If they want to put their U23s to play in the FA Cup or the League Cup in this particular instance, have at it. No problem. That creates more opportunities for trophies for the other clubs. How is that possibly a bad thing? I, I, I never understood that. Oh, it's too many games. No one cares about it. What are you talking about? L- last time I checked, last time I was in Liverpool in December, I went to our quarterfinal match against Leicester in the Caribou Cup. And let me tell you what, it was packed house. It was at night. The environment was electric. It was awesome. And I'm sorry it didn't suffer because there wasn't a big six team in it. So I think that's absolute hogwash and baloney. I hate the idea, especially the community shield. I mean, maybe we want here to be a better idea. Go back to the way it was before the community shield being for the community. You know what I mean? What it was mm. intended to be. You know what I mean? Don't do don't do away with it. It's still a really cool spectacle. I, I just I don't understand that at all. I also I think I think some of the dedication to the women's league, I think, is interesting, though, and it does have merit. It is getting more popular over there. And I think some of that seems like it's in encouraging, but they didn't give a lot of details on exactly what that would entail. I almost felt like they threw it in as some sort of novel commentary to make them seem altruistic. But I think that's what a lot of this is about. And then I think yeah. the other big thing is, is well, I mean, we could talk about the structure for a second, too, if you want to give your take and then talk about the distribution of income, which I think is really interesting. Well, I think it's clear when you look at the overall impact from the change of structure, and this has been observed by many people, the objective is for the big six clubs to be able to gallivant across the world on lucrative preseason tours and play fewer 
uh, play for your domestic matches in favor of what is presumably the overarching second no phase question. of this big picture, which is the European Super League. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's it's almost insulting in the how transparent it is. But at the same time, again, these clubs that are at the top of the, the hierarchy for a long time have recognized what their value is, that they are global brands, that they want to continue to build those global brands in the interest of making more money. And uh, as much as you may object to that, you have to, in some ways, uh, respect the boldness and the uh, authority by which that they're like just kind of thumbing their nose at the rest of every other club that that is so vital. You know, there's no way you could have these global brands or these clubs without the grassroots nature of English football, which I think is what makes it such a compelling watch for the global audience, where you do have these Cinderella stories in the cup matches, a Leicester City winning the league. Those are what draws what draw fans into the into the whole aura and and majesty, in my opinion, that is English football in general. No question. And then it's funny too, because they package these things in a way like we're, we're, we, the distribution of income was kind of like the next big segment of it. Right. And this idea that, well, the Premier League clubs, we're going to go from 92% of the whole ball of wax of the TV deal to, to 75%. And 25% of it's going to go to the championship, which kind of echoes, I mean, it's nowhere near the way it used to be before the Premier League was formed, but it echoes a little bit of that. And then the away ticket price cap. At 20 pounds, you know, and away travel would be subsidized, all that other stuff. That sounds really great, right? Until, and I full credit to Paul the Esk, who kind of pulled this out, which I think is really important. Friend of the show. Friend of the show. Friend of the program. Um, He pulled it out, and the line is, all Premier League clubs shall have the exclusive rights to sell eight live matches a season directly to fans via their digital platforms in all international territories, excluding the UK, ideally once a month. Well, okay, so that's great. So you're only going to take 75% of the total deal, but you'll have eight live matches that you can sell in your own package across the world. Which is half of the home matches, by the way. I mean, exactly. I mean, you'll basically just own all of that. I mean, what a joke that is. I mean, so yeah, yeah, you're giving up 25%. Oh, but I mean- the disparity now driven between the premier, you know, the top clubs and the lower ones is is massive in that regard. So, yeah, that's a complete, you know, that's a Trojan horse if I've ever seen one. Hundred percent. So, yeah, safe I mean, to say cool. that safe to say that uh, City would sell more uh, broadcasting licenses abroad than a Burnley would. Yeah, yeah, you think so? You're going on a limb there. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and you know who would sell the most? The two people making the proposal. So, I mean, ding, it, ding, did things. Seriously, did anyone honestly? Well, these two guys came up with the proposal. Well, I'm sure it's probably going to give more to the other people and not them. I'm sure they're not self-interested at all. I mean, come on, please get out of here. And even after all that, we get to and we talked about how all of these are are clearly self-serving proposals, 100 percent. Then we get to the big one. And this is the voting rights, because (laughs) I'm not sure how many people know this, but Prior to the formation of the Premier League, every single club in the football pyramid, as I understand it, had equal voting rights. And so there was this desire for the clubs at the top to kind of break off and be able to form their own league and to be able to claim more of the revenue and all those sorts of things. And as a result, you ended up with the Premier League. And that was the top at the time, I think, 22, eventually dropped to 20 clubs, all had the same voting rights. And that's the way it is today. Now, this new proposal changes that dramatically. And again, in a very, very self-serving and transparently self-serving way. And that is voting rights are given to only the nine clubs that have spent the longest amount of time in the top flight. And you say, okay, well, 
Obviously, that's the top six. And then we would be lumped in Everton, of course, Southampton and West Ham. You say, okay, well, uh, you know, that might make sense. You have tenured people making decisions for the best interest of the league. But wait, but wait. Only two thirds of the majority of nine is needed to legislate things like new club owners, vetoing them, approving them, changing the Premier League CEO, changing, quote unquote, competition rules. <laughs> I love that. That's that, a good one. Like, what does that even and mean? And that's not even the biggest one. The biggest one is dun, 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 dun. broadcasting income distribution. So there it is. Yeah, anytime you want, you just need, you know, a major two thirds majority, which is coincidentally the top six. Exactly. So you're looking at a move by the top six to take essentially uh, dictatorial control of major, major, fundamentally vitally important aspects of the game. And that is where I think most of the outrage has stemmed from, despite the fact that a lot of these other proposals do benefit, stand to benefit the top six the most. And you have to think about it. You're They're looking at other leagues, I, I think of La Liga as like the prime example where Barcelona and Real Madrid sell their TV rights, uh, their broadcasting rights, like they have exclusive rights to those. And as a result, you look at the way that those two have completely separated from the pack. Obviously, you have the Atleticos, the Sevillas, the other clubs in La Liga, but none that even come close to the amount of money that Barcelona and Real Madrid make. And you have to think like the, the Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea, City are all looking at that thinking, why not us too? So the one thing I'll say too is, you know, I, we try and give things an American spin, you know, to to balance it out for, because our audience is kind of all over the place. But I find this very interesting if you look at kind of the Premier League deal, and we were talking a little bit off pod about the origination of that and how the NFL and other leagues were inspiration for it. I find it very amusing now that they're going to such disparate attempts to disparate kind of income distribution. Right. When what makes the NFL so amazing for the owners is the fact that they have so many fixed costs and so many shared revenues and like the extra revenue they gain out of it is for very specific things. It's not that big a deal. You know, it's just it's very fascinating. So it's almost more like a baseball scenario in America to really yes. compare it to anything. Um, I also couldn't help but notice the the irony of. The origination of the Premier League was really kind of, you know, <laughs> man who ran a TV channel decided to invite the big five club owners at the time to dinner. Ironically, Everton was one of those under yes. Sir Philip Carter. Man City and Chelsea were not. So I found it really amazing that in, you know, the first meeting basically discussed this holistically amongst the Premier League clubs. That Denise, our lovely CEO at Everton, demanded an apology from both these guys, basically for going around everyone's backs. And I'm very interested to see who leaked this stuff. Whoever did this is is absolutely wonderful. Fantastic. Because, absolutely. And of course, shockingly, you know, apologetic for nothing, Tom Werner and Ed Woodward were basically said, well, we have nothing to apologize about. No, no, you don't. You don't at all. You're trying to basically completely bamboozle everyone and trap them. And, you know, mask all this, you know, bad stuff with this goodness. Um, I'm glad it came out, though. Uh, I, you know, I, I guess the best aspect of it is an attempt, albeit half-hearted, to help out the lower leagues. And if we think the pyramid's important, but what I don't understand is if you want to help out the pyramid, figure out a way to do it that's actually altruistic. I mean, why do you need all this other stuff? Is there some reason you need to transform absolutely everything just to help them out? No. 
No, you don't. Well, there's one thing, Ryan. There's one thing, and it's uh, Mm. in America, it's green. I think in other countries, it's (laughs) other colors. But uh, I think that is obviously like the most transparent motivation. But what I think, I think there's a little bit of like lack of self awareness, or maybe lack of appreciation. A little. What? Not on the part of you know. Yes, a lot. just not recognizing like what has made the Premier League over the last 20, 30 years, the global spectacle that it is. And that is that element of parody that exists that is so, so different in, in other European leagues. And it, you know, it's been dwindling. You have, even since the Premier League formed, there have been so few that have been able to break through the glass ceiling, but still there's the hope that a smaller club can still win and Leicester represent the, the materialization of that. But again, like it's always been about the top six clubs thinking that they deserve more money because they drive more viewership, which at face value, you can kind of say, okay, I mean, that that probably has merit. If I was in their position, I may feel the same way. But the way that it's disruptive in um, going back to like, you know, the NFL, what's made them so successful is that the the owners all work in unison. They're all aligned and they meet and they may disagree on things, but ultimately they're running the NFL as a company. Whereas the Premier League is very decentralized. Every club owns things like their own merchandise distribution, whereas in the NFL and other American leagues, that's all consolidated. and There's like revenue sharing involved there. So I guess my, my overall point is just that I don't want, I, I think that in forgetting their roots, they're maybe going to uh, lose some of the core appeal of why people watch these clubs in the first place. The one thing I also can't help, but I mean, you need someone to play. So yes. <laughs> right. I just have never understood that. And yeah, it's hard the way it's set up right now. You know, you need 14 people to basically prove something and then that's hard, but that's, that's life. You know, every league needs to run into that. And this just in, it's the most, it generates more revenue than any other league out there. And there's a reason for that. And I think you yes. hit on a lot of it. Yeah. Don't go the wrong way with this. It's just such a shame. And, and the sad part is there've been a lot of bad leadership in American leagues as well. Um, that have really misunderstood the fan base and, and, and been too corporate about things too. So in America, we're, we're well versed in those things too, but this just seems so tone deaf and out of place with the general ethos of, of the English soccer fan and fanatic, as I understand it. Again, totally ironic coming from an American, right? Sure. But, but I mean, that's, that's part of it. Uh, yeah, I, it's just, you know, the other thing I will say too is I, I think as an American, I appreciate the impact that the pandemic has had on clubs and things like that. But, but I got to admit, I mean, have you ever as an American, and again, the the sports are a little different here. We have closed systems and kind of fixed costs and more certainty, but have you ever felt any sympathy for an owner of a professional sports team in America? No, No, because never, never, never. No, and part and part of that reason is because there are way more super uber wealthy guys in America than there are that could possibly own a sports franchise. So, I mean, that's part of it. And you know, there's cost certainty and other things about it. So, you know, a couple of these teams out here in the championship, I don't feel a lot of sympathy for. So, some of them, some of them, truly, they're dealing with a lot of stuff, and it's difficult. And I get it. But what about a couple of them that maybe they're mismanaging their finances? I, I just, I cannot help but think about Wigan and yeah, some weird oh. stuff happened and, and maybe they shouldn't approve the, the change of ownership and all the shady stuff that went down, but still what happened to them? They got docked 12 points and they ended up going down as a result. 
So how many teams are we really talking about out here? Because last time I checked, we did a little math on this on the side. Um, how many? We've got something like, I think five clubs are owned by individuals or groups with uh, over a billion dollars of net worth. I think we've got, you know, probably another handful, maybe more than that, that are, you know, over 500 million at least. And, you know, I think Wednesday was the one I had questions about. And I, I don't think the canned tuna industry has really took a bad hit. So I think they're still okay. I mean, when, pandemic, own- when the pandemic first hit, I people know. were scrambling to get canned Sheffield tuna. Sheffield Wednesday should be buying people right and left. <laughs> but no, you've got Watford owned by the Pazos. Um, you've got Swans who, you know, the same group owns DC United. Middlesbrough, Steve Gibson has money. Bournemouth has sales of 80 million people, 80 million dollars. And then looking, I mean, look, the top 20 sales, I think they've had 20 sales so far in the championship for fees more than a million bucks. That's 247 million total pounds in fees. So I know some of these clubs are probably struggling a little bit. Brentford's well run. Norwich has big sales. The three came up, Wickham, you know, all of them. But who are these clubs? I I don't know. And and sometimes you got to take a step back and say, if we're going to bail them out, you know, one very interesting perspective is, and this is something that the American public would never go for, the idea that maybe the government needs to bail them out. Right. Because they're ultimately the ones that are prohibiting people from going into stadiums. You know, sure. some of these clubs may take a risk on that. And I think there's now it becomes a political debate. I, I don't know how on earth like a pandemic got to be a political debate. You know, it's science or not. It's unbelievable. Uh, it, it's a shame. It's a shame, you know, yeah. because and it's hard, you know, and there's some different attitudes. I mean, definitely the U.S. is so spread out. I think the disparity in attitudes is pretty dramatic, you know, not quite maybe like London versus, you know, the northwest of England, but similar in a way. So I I don't know. There's so many factors in this, but I'm glad it got shot down. Uh, It didn't seem to be an an, a genuine offer. You know, it seemed disingenuous at best. And and I'm very happy that the rest of the Premier League kind of banded together and told them to stick it. But you got to help but think that they're going to try this again. Yeah, and, and that, um, and that I hope not. But no, you're you're totally right, and that kind of is a nice way to wrap it up. I just have two last points. Kind of you talking about all the, all all the money in the ownership of of championship clubs, and I think COVID is not the sole source of why these clubs are in trouble. It has That's accelerated right. a lot of the the things that have been going on for a long time, where the vast majority of these clubs are are maybe. Not, a large portion of these clubs are not being run in a sustainable way. And then all of a sudden you take this gigantic loss of revenue out of the picture or into bring it into the picture. And all of these problems become what might've been a five year down the line issue becomes a now problem very, very quickly. And the second piece to your point about resurfacing this conversation, I, I was listening to the football ramble the other day and, and they made a really, really good point in that, this probably was never intended to just, they never ex- obviously didn't expect people to just say, sure, let's do it. Let's, let's make all these changes. This was their way of starting the conversation and starting the negotiation where, you know, you're negotiating for a salary and you ask for $300,000 as a starting jumping off point, knowing that you're going to get nowhere near that, but it frames the conversation in a way that's advantageous for you. And now that since this is the first real proposal for fundamental change to English football that has come out, Everything, every conversation from this point on is going to be framed around what this, what the the stipulations in this deal are. And so ideally, I don't think they'll expect to get all of these things, but they may get several of them when it comes down to it, because they do, despite the fact that they don't have a majority by themselves, they do still wield a lot of power. And if they start making threats like we'll leave, it's all well and good to say, then leave. 
but then the TV deals obviously start to, to drop tremendously in value. So there is some incentive for these clubs to work together to find something that w- works for all parties. This obviously wasn't it, but there people are going to have to accept that there will be changes because these clubs want them and they have traditionally and still do wield a lot of the power. So other things going on in the world of football, I think we forget with all this going on that the uh, the domestic league window is still open, <laughs> you know, yes. all this stuff going on. So I don't know if this is maybe this is just a sneaky distraction to try and sneak in a deal or two, you know, yeah. uh, you know maybe someone else is going to fire their mascot, you know, and still manage to sign someone for, you know, a couple couple hundred million, right? Um, hundred hundred K a week. Arsenal, Bring back Gunnersaurus. Oh, come on, man. It's so funny. Didn't like another club try and claim him already? I saw that. Yeah, that was great. Some good banter. <laughs> That's so good. So um, a couple of the interesting developments. So the first one is, I haven't checked the rumor mill since we started recording, but rumor has it, Middlesbrough is trying to make a deal for Yannick Bellassi. Now, I have never thought that he would go even within England. I, I thought there was a shot, of course, but I, I really kind of assumed that he would go um, somewhere else outside the continent. But um, this one will be interesting to watch. I mean, obviously, we're not going to get some big fee on it. He's in his last year of his contract, but I know he wants to play and he is looking for a club. And I think he'd probably do OK in the championship. But um, uh, this would only benefit us. I mean, he's not really in the picture as well. He is an entertainer, though, so I, I would like to see him play somewhere. His attitude's been great since he's been here. So this is kind of one wherever he goes, we kind of wish him the best no matter what, right? I mean, I, I think that's the attitude. Definitely. I mean, it's clear he's not in the picture. He's been told as much by Carlo. Uh, I, I hate to see players waste, especially a player at his age where he his time is coming to an end uh, at the top level. And he's got to make the most of it. So I hope that he can find a move because it just seems like not haven't been a ton of suitors, at least ones that uh, are willing to meet whatever we're asking for him or the, the terms that he's willing to to accept. But I hope he finds a move. I, I do think that at the championship level, you know, some of his uh, flamboyant style of play could come off and be be very, very entertaining. But it's it's obviously not a good fit for Everton. So hoping Marcel can get something over the line. A little surprised Bessick hasn't gone to, but me um, too. Yeah, it it is what it is. So I, I guess the rumor that's been going on for a while, I don't know how legitimate this is because I feel like it's too obvious. You know, it's something that was going to be dialogued about was a uh, possible Josh King incoming. You know, uh, there's been at least one or two dubious sources out there that have already claimed we've made a bid. I haven't seen one legitimate source, frankly. Um, you know, a couple of things about him too. Uh, you know, he turns 29 in January. He's Norwegian international. I, I think the benefit here is to play he doesn't play on the right that much but he can play right left second striker and he can play up top as a center forward you know he's almost close to six feet tall he's definitely a good athlete um i i think the theory of of having if we're gonna have dom and uh richie kind of be our top two strikers we still have jank right now but in theory if you were gonna have a third player that could also play on the right side you know, we already got rid of Theo. You could get rid of Jank too, and and you'd have no problem perhaps getting rid of him in January. So I get the logic. The numbers are are decent in some regard. You know, his um, non-penalty expected goals plus expected assists, P90 is around 0.37 for his last Premier League, three Premier League seasons, which is pretty good. And um, yeah. shot created actions, it's all from open play. 2.58 and it's really consistent too every year. You know, nothing from dead balls. That that's pretty good P92. My concern has always been and you can see the numbers, man. Uh, um his 
He doesn't receive the ball well. He, he's not great at controlling it. He's not a good possession player. Maybe some of that is schematic, the way Bournemouth would play fast on the counter and always be in a right. hurry to do everything once they got it. But like I, losing Theo never made any sense with the way we're trying to play now. Uh, you know what I mean? He's never a great passer. His ball control is always debatable. You know, it wasn't great. He could run. He was opportunistic. He could get behind defenses. He's a great counterattacking player, and I think he would fit in. You know, Southampton, he's going to run around a lot and be disruptive. So that'll be interesting how that plays out. But I, I, I don't I don't think this is a good idea, frankly. I don't know what he'd be asking or how much the money is, but I don't see it. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I just assume keep Jank um, as just yeah. simply a, a third center forward option. You know, we're dealing with a guy who's older, too. He's not going to have any sort of benefit to us from a buying standpoint and, and gain value later. I, I, I don't. I know a lot of people want it, think it's a good idea. I, I don't I don't really see it. I'm kind of curious what your take is on it. Yeah, I mean, I can understand the desire to get that one last player over the line. And I think what's interesting about Josh King is that he's kind of like one of the last players from the relegated clubs that you could see realistically making a move back up to the premiership. Yeah, true. true. Um, so I think he generates all this interest. I mean, there were rumors that West Ham were in for him. And from his perspective, right, you said he's 29 years old, he's a Norwegian international, and he has all of a sudden has all this competition in the national team as well, where he was kind of their guy. And now you've got Erling Holland breaking through the the scene quite impressively, of course. Yeah. Um, so from his perspective, he wants to get back to, to playing regularly at a high level. But I agree. It's like the the depth at right wing would help us in a lot of ways, because I think that's probably where we're most thin if Hamas goes down. The third striker option, again, I don't know how well he'd fit in our system. He's, he's, he's quick. He's a quick player, but his, his hold-up play leaves a little bit to be desired. As you said, not a good possession player. In the fee that we'd have to pay, it's like I think that's really been the biggest barrier for any team making a move for him is that Bournemouth want like $10 million for him. And it's just for a player of that age, um, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense for a lot of Premier League clubs, and I think Everton included. And when you look at the business we've done in this window, I think we found a decent balance, maybe not as good as many would have hoped, of players that can help now and players that can contribute down the line in the future that can develop and potentially be very valuable, resellable assets for us. Josh King falls firmly in the camp of he should help us now. How much he helps us now for how much we'd have to pay, I just don't really see the, the benefit for the costs that we'd incur. Yeah, I mean, I like it when he has the ball running at people. I'm not saying he's totally incompetent or anything, but if he was some natural, great right-sided player that would really fill a nice niche role for us, I, 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 I get it. But you know what, though? My thought is this. If you can't move Jank right now, why buy someone? I, I, I just, to me, does this guy give us a lot more on the right side, say someone like Gordon? Or even right. Alex will be playing out of position. I, 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 don't, I don't think so. Uh, that's just my personal opinion. If anything, I think it's more of a Theo and it's a bad fit. I could see him being okay, but I, I just, I, I don't think it makes a lot of sense. And the thing is too, I mean, we've got what, two, two and a half months until another window opens. Exactly. So I don't think we, I mean, we, we have enough numbers up there. I don't think that's really the concern to me, but you know, we'll see. And I think it'll be very, I, I would rather have us wait to make a move in January as people get healthy. Because you never know what that's going to look like. I mean, there was talk today about JPG possibly being fit, ready to play by the end of November. That's something we should probably mention real quickly. Yes. He's a really talented guy, and it's going to take him a while to get up to speed. But if he's ready to go in January, he can be your emergency center back help off the bench. 
he can obviously is is an immediate backup if he's anywhere near where he was to playing a sitting six, kind of what Allen's doing right now. Maybe we could send another midfielder out on loan. There, there are a lot of possibilities there. And if Jenk gets healthy, what do you do with him? Maybe you can get a fee for him in January. I don't know. And God knows with COVID how that's going to look. I think there are a lot of I, I, I just don't I don't see this being a massive need for us um, unless it's a total bargain and it doesn't sound like it is. Right. And, and just the one last word on Josh King, he is in the last year of his deal with Bournemouth, which I think is probably given most teams pause. Like, why are we going to pay 10 million for this guy when we That's can crazy. wait six months and get him start negotiating for a free transfer? So I think that'll probably wrap our first segment. But stay tuned after the break. We will dive into a preview of Saturday's very exciting Merseyside Derby. Welcome back, everyone, to the show. We are here with the Merseyside Derby preview. So Saturday, early match, 7.30 Eastern kickoff. God bless the West Coast Toffees, 4.30 a.m. Dedication, baby. You know they'll be up and at them. True dedication. So Saturday's match falls 10 years to the day since the last time Everton defeated Liverpool in any derby. I have never... It's It's... It's almost poetic in the way that it's kind of shaping up. Liverpool, of course, lost 7-2 to Villa before the break. Everton on a tremendous run of form, historic high since the 1800s. And I think it's safe to say that this is the first derby since I started regularly watching Everton that I am even the tiniest bit optimistic about potentially getting a result. And it's a combination of a lot of different factors. But I think one of the big ones is the fact that we have Carlo Ancelotti at the helm, and he is a guy who has shown the ability to tactically match Jurgen Klopp. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the most recent matchups Carlo has uh, had against Jurgen. Ryan, you can take it away. Yeah, he's been pretty successful with him over the years. Um, So... You know, the the last time, obviously, we remember it was the 0-0 draw we had when he was managing our fine Everton Toffees in June. It was a match we had no no right to really get much of a result out of, but he set us up very intelligently. Again, we were totally lacking in midfield. Everyone was hurt or just not there. And he sat back in a 4-4-2 and conceded 70% possession. And, and we actually created a bunch of chances, too, at the end, too, and I thought we might sneak one. They were missing a couple guys too. I think Milner played left back, and if you remember, he got hurt. Uh, yep, almost almost before uh, half, and they had to put Gomez in. And I, I, you know, what I really remember from it is how well Sheamus did against Salimane. Yes. And you know, Mo Salah was not on the right side, so that obviously makes a big difference. And I, I distinctly remember too. Carlo kind of making a tactical decision and subbing Gilfie in for Gordon in the 60th to kind of put him way out on the left side to deal with uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold. And it was a really good move. And I think it shored everything up. It just goes to show you, I mean, you can't really ever be successful without a strong midfield. I I don't think we'll see anything too much like that, but there's absolutely no reason to go at these guys. If Villa could sit back against these guys and score seven off the counter, I don't think we're going to see, you know, us be two front foot. So uh, with Napoli, Carlo just played quickly, against- Ryan, just quickly, if you don't mind yeah. me. Um, 
what I remember about that that match was it was obviously the first match following the the Premier League resuming. And so it was kind of cagey in that neither team really seemed totally up for it. Uh, it was the first match they'd been playing without fans in the stadium. Uh, and yeah, it was it was kind of dull to watch, but at the same time exhilarating. Like you said, we created a few chances. Seamus Coleman played played superbly, but I just remember both teams not looking totally comfortable uh, under the new new circumstances. And it was an encouraging draw. Obviously, we didn't know ex- and they weren't at full strength, nor were we. Um, but again, it shows that Carlo is not going to do anything too, uh, I wouldn't say ambitious, but nothing that's that's going to set us up for, for failure. He's obviously going to look to uh, exploit Liverpool's weaknesses. And as we saw against Villa, that does seem to be defending the counterattack. Yeah, he, he, look, he knows how to set up against teams like this. I mean, it's lovely having a world-class manager. And, and Klopp knows, too, that Carlo has players now that can hurt him. So if we look at the two matches Napoli played, they took four points against Liverpool in the Champions League group stages. Um, and again, this is 4-4-2, but I, I don't think – I mean, the 4-4-2 is just a number, really. You know, How yeah. they set up, I think, is going to be similar to the way we did. Um, there were definitely two different games. You know, the, the game at Anfield – was a one-one draw, but really they conceded. You know, like over seventy percent possession. They had scored pretty early. I think they scored in the twenty-first. And um, right. And again, you know, for Liverpool, strange because Gomez started a right back too. So I mean, they didn't have Trent in that one. But I think what we saw, and I think this is going to be something we're going to see going forward too. Di Lorenzo is a pretty combative right back, and he he was kind of doing a little bit what Sheamus was trying to take Sadio Mane out of the match and just a tackling machine. I hope what we see, however, though, was the September match in 2019 where Napoli beat him to two nil. It's one where they did stay on the ball. And and I think the one thing that we all know, or if anyone who watches this game with any sort of intellectual capacity or observation skills, the key to beating Liverpool is getting behind their fullbacks. They're pushed up so high. And I think what's fascinating, too, is I was kind of trying to relive this match. I remember watching it and. um Dries Mertens had the most fascinating heat map I think I've ever seen in my life. If you pull it up, I mean, he, his, his, he, every one of his touches pretty much were almost on the sidelines behind Robertson. And so the concept is, and I think he was almost starting on the left, is to try and get behind him and pull Virgil van Dijk out of the middle because that's really how they play. It's almost one center back. You know, the right-sided center back tends to push way up the field. Um, I will say this too. Allen was okay in that match. Allen was unbelievable in the 1-1 draw. He was just combative, tough. His anticipation is already so good. And again, Lorenzo did a good job on Mane in the 2-0, but, but it just goes to show you that Carlo knows how to beat them. So I, I think... You know, the real question is, what, what do we kind of expect to see? Um, a lot of that's dictated by the injuries. So I think it's probably worth kind of going through who's healthy, who's not, because I, I think most people are healthy, but it could draw some questions. You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it definitely mattered. Every one of those matches mattered slightly based on personnel. I think in particular, the 0-0 draw we had was helped by the fact that Milner went down. And then Gomez had to play a left back. You know, suddenly their threat on the left side was isolated to Mane. And I think that made a really big difference. And no Mo Salah either. Right. And no, yeah, of course, obviously, you know, you got to stop the one dangerous guy. And they do have other players, but still, they do have some injuries as well. So I guess we could run those suckers down. So, um, you know, Liverpool seems like they have all sorts of COVID issues, but magically, yes. magically, <sighs> it appears that they are somehow going to recover in time to play. It's amazing. 
No, in all seriousness, I think Sadio Mane and, and Tiago, they had negative COVID tests. I, I think they're over that and have, and, you know, with the negative tests, I think they can play. Um, there's still some uncertainty there, but I, I think we got to count on them playing. It will be interesting to see if he throws Tiago in the mix. I think Jordan Henderson, too, played for England, uh, but he still might not be 100% fit because they knew he wasn't going to be able to play more than 60 minutes. So, and then a couple other midfielders, too. So you've got, Keita, who we thought was not going to be there. We thought he was one of the five Guinea players that got a positive test. Um, we figured he'd be in self-isolation, right, until the end of October. Right. Well, apparently rumor has it that he has tested negative magically and has been allowed to fly back to Liverpool. So I, I don't know what this means. I think they definitely have some question marks in their midfield. They have a lot of different pieces there. I don't think everyone's thought that their midfield, at least their central midfield, was amazing, but it does provide tremendous industry. I think if there's one area in the pitch, though, that we may have a matchup benefit there is DeCorey and Allen, both guys that played in a midfield that beat Liverpool nicely last year. They're in there. They're going to be confident. Um, I think some of the other questions you've got, Oxlade-Chamberlain, we know he's out. Uh, Tismingas, who I think is really good, but I I think he's likely out with a knee injury as well. Joel Matip's apparently back in training. I don't think he would play anyway, but the big one is Allison being out. I mean, I think. Yes, huge. I, I think it's massive, right? We saw, I, I don't even think Adrian played that badly against Villa. It was just a jailbreak constantly. But I, I know that Liverpool fans are concerned about him. I'm frankly a little surprised Liverpool didn't get a second goalie, but that's got to be a huge lift. Allison is awfully good, and especially as a sweeper keeper. I mean, that's something where Everton fans should feel good knowing that we can test this guy and beat him. Yeah, and I think I think that is, you know, typically Everton isn't coming into these these derbies in a great run of form, and furthermore, Liverpool usually are on a really good run of form. So you look at it from kind of an opportunistic standpoint. We know that this team can be beat. This isn't the team that that won games by the skin of their teeth by dominating teams. Just couldn't seem to lose no matter how hard they tried at, at times last Very season. Good. Well, you they know, had some help at times. Yes, uh, absolutely. <clears throat> VAR is red, it seems. But again, like that, that uh, I think this Liverpool team can be beat. And you, t- I've seen a. I talked to one of my buddies who's a Liverpool fan. Believe it or not, uh, and he, he, the thing he said about the Villa match was that they desperately missed Jordan Henderson in the middle. Um, so if he doesn't play, I think that's another boost for us. Allison being huge, I think. I think Adrian's confidence is going to be at an all-time low. And furthermore, I think that their their outside backs can be got at on the defensive side of the ball. Everyone loves to rant and rave and praise how good they are going forward and how many assists they get. But again, on the opposite side of the ball, I think we now have the personnel that can kind of exploit them. And, and again, talking about dragging Van Dyke out of position, if we're able to to disrupt their typical style of play. There is no reason why this team shouldn't be going into this match with with full belief that they can take all three points. And I think that's something that's been missing from Everton going into derbies for a, for a long, long time, at least since I've been watching. And just quickly before we talk about EFC injuries and how we might set up, what annoys me most about being an American Evertonian is a there's a crap load of Liverpool fans over here. They're everywhere. 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 They're everywhere. And they don't really view Everton as a rival. And that really pisses me off, to be quite honest, because every season, this is one of our biggest matches, the Derby, both Derbies, whether we we face them in the cup, and they don't even view it as an important game. And that level of like disrespect 
just just really makes me mad. So more than anything, I just want to see us get a victory and and put it put us back on the radar of you know American fans. Obviously, those in Liverpool appreciate the the local the local rivalry. It's massive. It's it's historical. It's everything. Um, but I don't think American Liverpool fans have that same appreciation for it. So it'd be nice to kind of get one over on them, to say the least. Well, the if you know your history doesn't apply yes. to American Liverpool fans. Sorry <laughs> if they're listening, but it's true. You know, I mean, they're, you know, it, look, no American, we had a great dialogue uh, about this the other day on Twitter. No American that's a grandstander or front runner would choose Everton. <laughs> you know no. what I mean? Ever, Everton appeals to people because of its ethos and its values. And that's something that we really appreciate. You know, I, I would not dare foot, dare set foot in Goodison without a healthy appreciation of what I was stepping into. And it's a magical place, I think, as a result. Having been to Anfield myself, it's not, it's not even the same thing. Um, so, yes, it would be nice to kind of put them over the edge. What I hope to see is Jurgen Klopp flipping out on the sidelines. Oh, the team. That would be just priceless to me. Yeah, so so I think it also matters to us in terms of injury who we can deploy and how we can deploy him. So yes. I, I, it seems like Luca Dean's okay. We haven't had that confirmed from anyone, but um, he seems to believe he will be fit. I think Phil Kirkbride indicated that he thought so. Um, Yeri's questionable. I think that would be problematic ultimately. Yes, uh, hugely. I, yeah, it's just I mean Ben Godfrey's a talent. Um, you know, it's funny if he had been with the club a little bit longer and was used to the tactics, I could actually see him. Holgate did really well, by the way, in the, in the 0-0 draw, if I recall, um, for us. He would actually, in many ways, be be a better matchup against Mo Salah yes, um, than almost anyone piece. else we have. Yeah, exactly. He's just a little more athletic and can kind of frustrate him. He's combative. Um, but it sounds like Alan, Andre, and Seamus are fit. Um, how fit is questionable, but I, I, Seamus is really important. I think in this one, as is Luca Dean. Um, I love Nkunku, but I, I have, he, his <sighs> issues are in defense and this would be such a massive step up for him. I think we'd see Delph before him personally, but, uh, Seamus really needs to play that Di Lorenzo and, and the Seamus role that he played before. The thing is about Liverpool is you know where these guys are going to be on the pitch. There's no question where they're going to be. They're in the same darn places every single time, at least the forwards. You got to be able to deal with them. Firmino is different. You know, he's he's kind of a unique player. Um, but Seamus is key. He bottled Mane next time last time. He has got to do the same thing. You know, and Yeri being there to help out would be massive as well. So I don't know. What are your initial thoughts on setup? I mean, I definitely have my ideas. Uh, based on those games, I, I don't think there's no reason for us to really necessarily go at I mean, no team really needs to go at them. It's just stupid to do it. I mean, they're still ultimately, even though they throw a long ball around all over the place, they still want to play with the counter press, you know what I mean? And get in right. people and and work off turnovers and and create and capitalize on mistakes, you know, and score quickly off turnovers. You know, that's kind of the clop. It's kind of the last 10 years German type of way. So I don't think we want to do that, but I'm very interested in how you think we're going to set up. Well, I do think you're right in that injuries will play a huge role. Like I think Coleman at 80-90% fitness is has still has to play because obviously John Joe Kenny's still out and you're looking at again, that was earlier in the week that was the huge question was like who the heck is going to play right back for us really? if Seamus is now and you're talking about Ben Godfrey potentially going in and I believe Carlo may have alluded to the fact that he may may play, which obviously is is not the probably ideal scenario to make your Everton debut could be viewed as as perfect in some ways to make an impact. But assuming that the guys that are questionable are fit, I think obviously it's going to be Mina and Keen in the middle. I do have a little bit of 
little concern about how they may match up with the the agile movement of Liverpool's front three and the di- dynamism of, of Firmino as much as I hate his guts. Um, but I think that back four, that, <laughs> that's how you really feel. Be, <laughs> I think that back four should be penciled in. And then midfield, of course, is where things get interesting. Ducore and Allen need to start. No question. They provide that backbone. I think Ducore can provide that, that, um, Ability to transition going forward where we're going to have to hit them quickly. He can do some of the ball carrying. He can pick a long pass. Allen will just be a disruptive little, uh, I don't want to say it on show, but, uh, you know, he'll be, he'll be a problem and he'll put in tackles. And I think he'll be the real steal within the team. And then the third midfield spot. I mean, you know, this is one of the questions that we got asked was assuming every, or sorry, let me go to it. You get the actual wording is that, uh, yeah, it's a good question. So Jeremiah Baker is really active on Discord, and we like Jeremiah a lot. Um, assuming full fitness, would you prefer Andre or Gilfie starting? Um, yeah, it's a it's a good question. It's a great question. I I think both are both have the ability to distribute from deep. You know what I mean. So if we're going to sit back a little bit and try and pick them apart, and I, I could see a lot of Richarlison diagonal runs or Dom diagonal runs behind left back, right back, mostly left back. I'll bet. Because the idea behind that is you pull Van Dyke out of place um, because he's sitting in the middle. So he's got to go one way or the other. I mean, that's the thing. He, it, they, they don't play even on center back. You know, there, there's no real reason to sit in the middle of a channel there because that's not how they play. Right. Um, I think both of them have the ability to find that player. I, I mean, if, you know, Andre's a better possession player by a mile for sure. You know, Gilfie yeah. is not good at receiving the ball, he's not good at getting in space. His feet are so slow. And Andre's not quick either, but if we need to hold the ball, he can do it under pressure. So I, I actually would prefer Andre personally. I think he's a better fit if he's healthy. I, I almost want to lean the opposite and disagree with you, Ryan. Um, I can see the argument for both, and and quite frankly, I'm not going to be disappointed either way. But my reasoning is I just think we, we've talked so much at length about how they're both horrible on defense as far as getting tripled past and being slow. <laughs> They're not great. No, <laughs> let's be clear. But I do think Gilfie just has more of a, a defensive work rate, at least whether or not he's actually good at positioning and all those sorts of things. But I think he's the better lane, at it. He's definitely yeah. better at it than Andre. I mean, yeah. look, he's all, he solidified our team last year coming in the 60th for Gordon. I wasn't kidding about that. I mean, he really did a nice job. So I, I don't think that's crazy. I think he's a better defensive player. He's definitely more positionally astute defensively than, than Andre, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, and I think he just has that. We saw it in the break. Like he can, and he scored in the derby before. He can create. Andre Gomez is. If you, I don't know what the odds are him on are on him scoring on Saturday, but uh, I would pick Gilfie to score above him, obviously. And I think with Allen and and Decore behind him, it may give him that little bit of extra leeway to to find those pockets of space and link up with the front three, who I think is probably penciled in at this point is, is of course, Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin, and we're going to have Hamas um, in that fluid off the right-hand side, drifting all over the pitch roll. I would assume he's going to play a little deeper. I, I think it will look more like a 4-4-2 than the 4-3-3 that we've seen personally. I think you're going to see Richarlison and Dom with a lot of interplay playing closer together. I know that's a little bit of a risk because you want Richarlison to kind of come back deep on the left uh, and defend at times, and maybe we'll see some of that early. Uh, but I think James is going to drift middle quite often. I, I'm very interested to see how Decore will, and Gomes would be will be deployed if he's in there, or even Gilfie. You know, you could see them also kind of functioning as deeper mids with Allen kind of protecting 
the center. But I think what's really exciting is the idea that Hama is dropping in the middle. And even Allen from deep, I think we're going to see a lot of longer balls into either the wide channel over Robertson or just going after Virgil or playing around him. You know, that's what I hope we see. Allen is really good at that, too. I don't know if you've ever seen like the way he can shape balls from deep very quickly. I think that's where we're going to do a lot of damage. I hope I could see Dom getting out wide right, pulling Virgil to him and playing it in the middle. And what I hope we see a lot of is decore who is just the man jumping back into the play just going box to box yeah i i want to see him bury one i think that would be exciting i think that's kind of the game plan yeah i that's that's the general idea so that's my thought is it'll be a little bit asymmetrical i think you'll see richarlison pushed up higher he'll probably be leaking more to the middle i think james will drift more to the middle I, i think we'll sit back quite a bit at least initially and have Less distance between lines, almost making four four two. It'd be very interesting to see if that happens. But yeah, I think it'll be pretty interesting. We had a couple questions from the Discord. I don't know if you have any parting shots before we get to them. No, I think I think we're largely in agreement, bar one or two personnel changes. I think it's important that we shore things up early, let things get settled a little bit, and then we look to sort of surprise them on the counterattack. Um, and I do think we have the again. I think we have the personnel that we can really we can put a few past them. And I and the big thing is just with Adrian and goal. I think that their whole that brings their whole team's confidence, especially their back line, just a you know second guessing balls that they might not normally. Um, this isn't the the solidified Liverpool unit. And furthermore, and this is something I've I've heard discussed is this is a team that has been under tremendous mental pressure for a very very long time. You think about. Two seasons ago when they they fought City to the very end for the title. And then, of course, last season when they uh, or the season before they had the Champions League run and then they had the title winning season. So typically it is very hard to to maintain that high level of performance over a long period of time, which is why when teams do it so rarely, it's so incredibly impressive because oftentimes we see it with City where you mount a challenge and then things sort of start to fall apart. And I'm by no means saying that that's the case with that Liverpool team, but the amount you have to be dialed in every second of training of of every year, eventually you just get burnt out. And I think based on the evidence from the start of the season, that could potentially I'm jinxing my jinxing us really bad right now, but that could be the case with Liverpool. And and for that reason, I feel at least the tiniest bit optimistic about. Our, our chances at a result. So let's get into these listener questions before before we wrap here. And this one comes from Zach Landy from the Discord. How do each of your expectations of the rest of the season change depending on the result of the game? Ryan, I'll let you take this one first. Uh, they don't for me. I mean, I, I, I don't think we should be getting carried away. We said from day one that we were shooting for sixth. I think that's realistic. Um, I'm not going to get overly carried away because we've had a great start. I'm thrilled I couldn't be happier about it. I know my voice may not indicate that at this moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> I am, but uh, yeah, let's not start chalking us for Champions League yet. Um, so I, I I would love to win. I think it'd be such a wonderful rallying cry for the fans, but no, it doesn't, it doesn't impact me, uh, at least my idea, even if it may impact. I, in fact, actually, I think there's some risk if we win, people getting carried away. Yes, but, and I'm going to be one of those people. Uh, <laughs> I didn't say I wouldn't be running around the street making noise. I'm just saying, you know, 
And it, the only reason I, I'm going to go on this, and I, I tweeted this the other day, and my my statement was, if if Everton win the Derby, then I think there's a good chance that we can get top four. I didn't say we would. Um, yeah. But I think that with it having been 10 years since we last beat them, it's been so long with this just funk and cloud hanging over this Everton team. And I think when you lose to a team as often as Everton have lost to Liverpool or fail to get a, a winning result, that just puts this gigantic mental burden. And we know that the mental burden has been there and this team has been, again, I don't want to throw jabs at anyone, but the consistency and the mentality hasn't been there. From the start of the season, the signs are very encouraging. I think you know we started the season with an away win at a quote-unquote top six side. This would be the next kind of monkey off our back that we could get. And I think it would just do wonders for the team's confidence overall and, and fill them with belief that, hey, we can beat these guys. We can beat absolutely anybody. So for that reason, uh, I, I, I'm not going to change my expectations, but I think that this, if we put in a good result and get a win, this is a good catalyst for the team to at least start to shoot for those Champions League places. Yeah, again, I just don't want to get carried away. Um, <laughs> no right, fun, next, Ryan. I, I'm just saying. All right, so the next question comes from our, our man, Stockhausen. Stockhausen, pardon me. I should know we go back and forth a lot, too. Assuming everyone is fully fit, and we are, hypothetically, continuing to see the fluency and cohesion we've been seeing so far, what does this current squad need for a respectable Champions League run next season? What about Europa? The Liverpool performance could be a gauge of how we might perform against... European teams. I mean, this is very similar. Cryptis has a very similar one. Do you mean if we qualify for you? Like we're talking about Europe already, and this is kind of making my point for me. Yes. Why are we doing that? Just relax, guys. Let's enjoy it. But I, I look, I mean, if we were to qualify for the Champions League, we need to add some talent for sure. But it is nice to have some depth at different positions because if everyone's healthy, we have too many midfielders in a way. Yeah, you know, true. Um, right. And having four center backs now that have some positional flexibility as well is really helpful. So um, some of the positions we'd be fine, but I mean, I don't want to look too far ahead. I mean, I'm sure we'd love to have a, a more outstanding right back. I'm sure we'd ha- like to have a couple different things as well. Yeah, no question. I think I think the, the positions that we we've talked about at length and like the squad assessment and the transfer window wrap up like a right back would have upgrade is going to be necessary sooner rather than later. Very soon. In fact, I still think although Hamas does in name play kind of like the right wing, uh, a player that can play comfortably truly on the right side would be an asset. I still think we need a second striker, just general squad depth to cope with the, the rate at which fixtures come when you do have the European schedule to, to account for. Um, so there's, I think we're still a long way from being a, a regular competitor in Europe, but I think we're on the right track without question based on our business this, this summer. And we already talked about Jeremiah's question. So let's wrap things up with Valley Wit, longtime listener of the show. How do we classify Firmino headed into the match? Defensive striker or forward defensive back? (sighs) (laughs) We classify him as a spectator when Mason Holgate puts him in the first row is what we classify. Yes. Yes. That's what I like to hear. No, you know, know, it's funny. I I have to admit, you know, I've seen him play. I remember seeing him play live. Uh, His movement is pretty impressive, but, you know, and he did, I think he scored right um, for Brazil. Uh, I, I don't know. You know, the sad part is if he plays really well, he is absolutely critical for them. But um, let's hope Yeri's healthy because he's played against him plenty times before. And um, I think Alan will be back there harassing him and annoying him as well. They obviously know each other. Um, 
I don't really care what we classify him as. I just hope he doesn't do anything because I think he's really important to their team. He's the one guy up there where you're not sure where he's going to be. You know what I mean? Right, right. He's that unpredictable element that kind of links things together. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of a false nine, defensive striker, whatever you want to call him. You know, I, you know, I try not to give too many labels. I mean, we're not playing football manager here. Uh, but again, like I say, I, I put him in the first row. That's all I care about. <laughs> Love to hear it. All right. Well, as many of you know, this would be the, the time in the show that we would do score predictions, but we're going to do something a little bit different here. Uh, we're going to be doing our score predictions on the Discord server. So if you're not already a member of the Discord server, the link is invite.gg slash ATP. Uh, join the channel. We've got some really great discussion. We've been having people joining left and right. It's been awesome. Uh, some some really good char- characters in there. Some good dialogue. Some back and forth uh, that I think everyone, every Evertonian can appreciate. So do join if you're so inclined. Otherwise, leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Follow us on all the socials, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And God willing, the Toffees will pick up three points on Saturday, but we'll be with you guys regardless after the match for a review. Until next time, up the Toffees. Thanks for tuning in to the American Toffee Podcast. Come join our Discord community at invite.gg slash ATP and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at USA Toffee Pod.